Philippians is one of those books that has tons of verses that are quotable, memorizable, tweetable, postable, whatever you want to do. It seems like every chapter, there's another verse that can be memorized or it just it clearly stands out. I mean, I think about chapter one, verse 21, one that you know well, the way I memorized it was to live is Christ and to die is gain, or the way the New Living Translation says it, for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. When you read that verse, it's clear that Paul is single-minded. He is focused on Christ. To live for Christ or to die and be with Christ, either way is good for him, but it shows you his mindset. Matter of fact, that same mindset is all throughout the book. If you look in chapter two, verse two, it says this, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. There it is, single-minded, one mind, one focus. He, he says it again in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but here it is. I focus on one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. This idea of being so singular focused that it drives you. And for Paul, that focus was clear. Jesus Christ and the gospel. That was it. That's where his mind was set. And that's where he wanted the Philippians' mind to be set. Matter of fact, Jesus himself even says it in Luke 9.62. It says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. This ability to say, we are plowing ahead. We are looking forward. We're not looking backwards. We're not looking to the side. We're only looking ahead. We love this in our lives. We're actually motivated by it and inspired by it. We love to see people who have this singular focus. We see it in sports. Uh, many of us may remember the story of a, a young boy named Rudy, whose singular focus was to play on the Notre Dame football team. Matter of fact, they made a movie about it. His whole story was about obstacles that he had to overcome to get on that ball field, to wear the gold helmet for Notre Dame. And when he did, he made a play at the end of the game and he was carried off. Iconic because he was single-minded. Or what about in the military? We're reminded by guys like Desmond Doss, who was made famous or his story was made famous in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. He wanted to serve in World War II. He wanted to be a paramedic. He wanted to, to help people, and, and he did. As he was on that ridge and lowered soldier after soldier down to safety, if you'll remember his words over and over were, one more, save one more, single-minded. He was there to help people. For Paul, that's him. As we finish Philippians, we're going to see the single-mindedness of Paul and the benefits that come from it. Let's take off reading in chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped me to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. Now, I want to stop and go back to verse 12. And if you'll notice, he says right up front, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters. Typically in a letter, that would be followed by things that 
the audience might want to know. So Paul, what, what are, what's the food like? Or Paul, what's the treatment like? Or Paul, what are the sleeping arrangements like? Or, or what's your cellmate? Or, or what's going on? And you would think Paul might even give some details to those things. He doesn't say a word about his own predicament. He's so single-minded that immediately out of his mouth, he's talking about the spread of the gospel. He's talking about the advancement of the gospel. That word is so important when we think about why we're single-minded. When we're single-minded, we're moving towards something. It's about progress. It's about movement. It's about momentum. And for Paul, that's what his whole life ever since meeting Jesus has been about. He's about going to the next place and planning another church and telling more people about Jesus and telling more folks about the life-changing reality of Christ. And so here he is in prison and this does not deter him. Matter of fact, it's clear that even the people, the whole guard is hearing about Christ. I love the fact that it says, for everyone here in verse 13, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains. It has the idea that everyone knows Paul's not some ordinary run-of-the-mill prisoner. He's not your ordinary crook. He's not your ordinary guy who's uh, convicted of assault. He's there for one reason. And that one reason is because he's preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And the way he's doing it, even in prison, is with single-minded focus. If you'll remember back to last week when we started this in Acts chapter 16, remember he was in prison. He was thrown in jail. He was cuffed in his hands and his feet. And even to midnight, you remember, he was praying and singing. And the other jailers and the other prisoners were listening. Can you imagine what Paul was doing in Rome? He's doing the same thing. He is singing, he is praising, and he is proclaiming the gospel. Everyone knows it. I can almost imagine as they swap duties or change shifts that they're like, oh, we got to listen to Paul share the gospel again. That's what he's doing, single-minded. But here's the deal. Paul doesn't just want that for himself. He wants that for the Philippians. Let's skip down just a, a few verses and you'll notice it when he says in verse 20, for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I truly, and, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. And there it is. There's that famous verse for to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. If we stop reading there, it might seem like Paul is in some morbid conversation with himself, but he's not. He really, is he really does have this single-minded focus that says, man, I want to be with Christ so bad that I can serve him in my life or I can be in his presence in death. But he says, if I live, it's better for you, Philippians. He goes on and says this, knowing this in verse 25, I am convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. That word grow, it goes back up there to the verse 12. It's the same word. It means 
progress. It means advancement. It means spread. This is what Paul wants. He goes, I want you to advance. I want you to grow. I want your faith to blossom and mature and to to grow. I want it to see movement and motion toward Jesus. And then he says this, so that you will experience the joy of your faith. Remember last week, John asked us a question, and I'm going to be honest with you, it was a little hard to, to answer. He said, rank yourself on the joy quotient. You know, one to 10, how much joy do you have? My guess is that most of us struggled with that because we probably tried to answer it in terms of our circumstances. Like, I had a good week, so I have lots of joy. But maybe joy is deeper than our circumstances. I'm going to argue, and I think Paul is arguing here, that our joy quotient is directly tied to our growth and walk with Jesus Christ. The motion there, the movement there, that as I grow closer to Jesus, a deeper, more long-lasting, eternal joy is found in that. And as I move further from him, maybe my joy falls away. As I think about this here at Radius, we, we really truly do want, want our people to, to progress, to, to have advancement and motion and movement in the gospel. We, we want people to take their next steps with Jesus Christ. We're not asking you to take the next leap. We're not asking you to take the next massive bound or jump. We just want you to take the next step. We want you to grow in your joy in the faith of Jesus Christ. So I guess the challenge for us this week would be is, where are you at on your journey? If our joy is tied to that journey, we might want to know who we are. Here at Radius, we're, we're thinking about some language to define that. So let me throw them out to you. We, we think about people in a, in a spectrum, and maybe the first ones are those folks that are far off from Jesus. Maybe they're far off because they have no interest in Christ whatsoever, or maybe they had an interest, they grew up in the church, but they decided it it wasn't for them. And there may be some of you watching right now who you would consider yourself far off. Thank you for watching. Thank you for putting up with me, you know, getting passionate up here. We are so glad you joined the service. But but you would say, you know what, I'm I'm far off. I, I, I don't really have a relationship with Jesus. Then there would be those of you who would say, well, I'm a fan. I like God and I like Jesus. And, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. And so I'm a fan. And you might say, don't get me wrong. I don't go to church that often. You know, I'm a few times a year kind of person. And I've tried to do small group, but that's not really my thing. But you're a fan. You you would say, "I, I, I like Jesus and his teaching. There would be those of you who would say, I'm a friend. You know, I, I actually like Jesus. I go to church on a semi-regular basis. I try to have some spiritual disciplines like pray and read the Bible. I've tried small group. I've, I've, I've been in and out of them, but I really am a friend. I'm, I'm trying. Then there would be those of you who are faithful. And when I say faithful, I mean, you're here seven out of eight Sundays. You're reading your Bible. You're, you're praying. You're generous with your gifts. You, you are clearly somebody that says, you know what? I want to be connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And then there are those of you who would be fruitful. 
Those of us that would say, you know what? I don't only love Jesus and want to follow him. I want to make disciples and I'm pouring myself into people and, and reproducing what Jesus has done in me. And I'm trying to do that in somebody else's life. And so we would say from this spectrum of far off to fans, to friends, to fruitful and faithful, my question to you is, which one are you? And for Paul, he would say, man, the more faithful and fruitful you are, the more joy we would have. And maybe those of us that are fans and friends and we're struggling with joy, we want you to take that next step so that you can experience the joy, the salvation of Jesus Christ. So clearly, Paul is single-minded and in his single-mindedness, he wants motion and movement. He wants that even in spite of our circumstances. I mean, as we read earlier, he's in prison and the whole prison guard is, is, is learning about the gospel and it's moving forward. He even goes on and talks about more opposition in verse 15. It says, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach out about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me, he says. Apparently there's a group of preachers out there that are competing with Paul. That's what he says, a rivalry. It's almost like they're trying to one-up him in church plants or one-up him in how many people are gathered to hear him or, or one-up him in the amount of letters that are written. I don't know what it is. It almost sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Where the church begins to compete with itself instead of unifying around the message of Christ. Here he says, this is happening and he's got this opposition, but look, it doesn't change his single-mindedness. He says this in, in verse 18, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they're preaching with bad motives. It doesn't matter that there's a rivalry. It doesn't matter if it's jealousy or conceit or selfish ambition. He goes, it doesn't matter. He then goes on and he says, whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice. There it is, single-minded. It's not about me, he says. It's about the gospel and the gospel is going forward. So if they preach with bad motives, that stinks, but at least people are hearing the gospel because that's what his mind is focused on. And so he says, I continue to rejoice for I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead me to my deliverance. And I think he's talking about ultimate deliverance. So Paul has to be single-minded to, to see the gospel advance even with opposition. But he wants that for the Philippians because the Philippians have opposition. They have some things that they're facing that could distract them. If we skip down to verse 27, listen to the words of Paul as he finishes the chapter to give this encouragement to the Philippians. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. That idea, citizens, it's a very political word. And, and if you'll remember back in Acts chapter 16, Paul was arrested and they were claiming some things about him that didn't line up with Rome. We're going to read that here in a minute, but put that in your back pocket because he's talking about this idea of how do we live 
He then goes on and says, then whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, there it is, single-minded, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. The Philippians have enemies. They have people that are standing against them. And Paul says, this will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you're going to be saved even by God himself. I think, again, Paul is looking to the eschaton as he sits back and says, if you stand with Jesus, salvation is yours. And if you stand against him, separation from God will be yours. So remember, back in Acts chapter 16, who are their enemies? I think the enemies are those very people that were the enemies of Paul. Remember that slave girl that was following Paul around and he cast that demon out of her. And when he did, their prophet went out the door because she was able to tell people's fortune. Look again at what the people did. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 16. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas, dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace, and the whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials, they're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city official ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods, and they were severely beaten. And then they uh, were thrown into prison, and the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. Let me ask you a question. When Paul is finally run out of town, they get him gone, they're still upset. They're upset that he changed their way of life. They're upset that this girl is no longer able to tell fortunes. They're upset because they're embarrassed because they treated a Roman citizen, Paul, the wrong way. And so here's the deal. What do you think is going to happen the next time Lydia walks down the street? I guarantee you there's some murmuring that says she's with Paul. What about that jailer? As, as he goes about his business in the square, I guarantee you there's glances and elbows that say he was with Paul. And I can guarantee you in the same way that people stood in opposition to the disciples because of their affiliation with Jesus, there are people suffering because of their affiliation with Paul and his message about Jesus. So as we read this and he says, your enemies... I think Paul knows exactly who those enemies are. I think he knows exactly who they are and their faces because he suffered under their hands as well. And he says, stand firm. Don't be intimidated. Don't let this sidetrack you. Don't let the circumstances, don't let the critics, don't let the chatter, don't let any of this opposition sidetrack you. I got to thinking about it and I just, I'm embarrassed by how easily sidetracked I am. I'm embarrassed by how easily distracted I am from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we think COVID is a big distraction, I, I was distracted before. 
I was distracted with baseball. I, I was distracted with all kinds of things. And, and my guess is that you are probably with me. Matter of fact, we all have a device in our pocket that gives that subtle little vibration that as soon as it goes off, it's, it's just a distraction. For Paul, he's saying, don't be distracted. Be single-minded. Don't let the circumstances of this life, opposition or otherwise, distract us. One more thing. Verse 14. I skipped it. I want to go back to it. He says this. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. I skip that because as I read it, it, it's almost a little counterintuitive. People are being emboldened to preach the gospel even though Paul's in prison. You would think, people would think, whoa, if they're arresting Paul, they might arrest me, but that's not what's happening. They're being inspired. They're being motivated. They are, they're saying if Paul can do it, we can do it. There's something about us, if we will be single-minded, if we will press into Christ, if we will follow after him, if we will do this, it will motivate, it will inspire others to do this. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the people that have inspired me. And then I think about people who have inspired Christians all over. I just share one story. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. These were missionaries to a tribe in Ecuador. And as they tried to reach this unreached people group with the gospel, Jim and five others were brutally murdered. These people were uh, just didn't know any better and they attacked Jim and his team. Now, here's what's crazy. Are you ready? Nate Saint had a son named Stephen. And Jim was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and he had a 10-month-old daughter at the time. Elizabeth Elliot took her daughter into that tribe that had just murdered her husband so she could learn the language, so that she could present the gospel. She's a hero. That is, that is inspiring. That is motivating. Why? Because she was single-minded for the gospel and these people needed to hear it. Or what about Stephen Saint, Nate's son? Stephen too would go back into that tribe and he would meet the very man that took his dad's life. Can you believe that? Why? Single-minded, focused on Christ. Let's be real. Most of us are probably never gonna have the opportunity to lose our life for the sake of the gospel. And you might think, yes, that's inspiring. But what about the day-to-day? -day? As many of you know, Pastor Chris Seabee, who has been here from day one, is now transitioning off staff. And, and as he does, I, as I read this, I couldn't think of a better guy to bring inspiration. I, I think about the ways that he puts people in his pickup truck and drives around and talks about the gospel. I think about the many of us who our lives are changed for the better because of how he has served with a single mind to be generous and to love and to share the gospel of Christ. I hope these stories and more inspire us to do this very same thing. That's what Paul's after, single minded 
devotion. So as I close, where are you at? What's your joy quotient? And how is it tied to your journey with Christ? Are you close to him? Are you single-minded? Or are you distracted? Our hope is that you would grow closer to Jesus and in turn grow with more and more joy. Paul is writing to the Philippians because they are facing persecution and trying circumstances. And doesn't that relate to where we are today as we are facing trying circumstances? The more I talk to people, whether it be around the Lexington, Columbia area or around the United States, it is obvious that we are going through a time where people are hurting and don't know what to do about the problems they face. Even statistics say as much that the, uh, the unemployment rate is as high as it's ever been since the Great Depression. And the suicide rate has gone up 35% here lately with most of the suicides, four out of five suicides being men who are just trying to figure it out. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that God is up to? And what glory can he get out of what we are going through? Believe it or not, I believe the answer is in our science books, which says that Newton's third law, it says that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I'm going to say it again for those of you that didn't pay attention in science class. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And while the world is so caught up in the action, while the world is so dismayed by the action, I believe that God is watching closely the world's reaction. While we are worried about the job loss and the unemployment, God is looking at the world's reaction to the job loss and unemployment. While we are looking at the sickness and disease, God is looking at the world's reaction to the sickness and disease. And so what is the world's reaction? How is the world reacting to all that is going on? Google Trends started in 2004 tracking internet searches. And what they have found, what they reported was that in March of this year, just last month, there were more internet searches for prayer than in any month since 2004. It is obvious that the world is reacting by praying. It is obvious that the world is reacting by falling on its knees. It is obvious that the world is reacting by looking to God. And while God may not take much pleasure in this action, I believe, you better believe, he's getting glory out of the reaction. No wonder when we look at Paul, he is imprisoned and in chains, and yet with joy, Paul is able to say in verse 20 of Philippians 1, I have full courage that Christ will be honored, full courage that Christ will be glorified. And I don't know about you, even in spite of what we are facing as a country, when I look at my Bible, when I read Philippians, I, I gain courage and I have to say, I have full courage, full courage that God will be glorified. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that you are glorifying yourself, uh, even in all of what we are going through. God, isn't this the reaction you wanted? Isn't this the reaction you wanted from the world that you just wanted us to look to you? You just wanted us to pray. And so God, we look to you today. We look to you for the answers as we, as we bow our heads 
whether it be in our homes or, or wherever, we bow our heads looking to you, God. We bow our heads in prayer, knowing that you have all the answers. We ask that you would be with us and bless us and continue to glorify yourself during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.